You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. teaching text is from Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? If you don't give me more energy than that, it's going to be a long... Long day. Good morning. How we doing? Hey, there we go. Don't mind my water. Just got super thirsty. Uh, I'm excited for this word today. Um, truthfully, I've been like wrestling with it. It's always the shortest and simplest text that can sometimes uh, cause you the much the most grief in trying to see what the Lord is saying and. Um, But we got there, and I'm really glad about what he wants to say to us. Let me just pray for us. Lord, we open your word, excited for what you have to say in and through it, because your word tells us that it won't return void. And you say that it is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training up in righteousness. So, Lord, may it be so. May we come away from your word and our time in it today with a fuller picture of who you are. And may we perceive more so clearly the invitations you are giving us into your work and how we can join you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, we are wrapping up our series today, Resilient Hearts, examining the characteristics of the requisite hearts needed to live and love in a port city such as ours. Now, we've discussed the need for settled hearts. Those are hearts that are, are, are built and founded on Jesus. Uh, then we talked about having source hearts, hearts that have this rhythm, like this rhythm and this routine of coming back to the Father for refreshment and renewal in a city that commands so much. We talked about having surrendered hearts that are open to the invitation of Jesus and revealing themselves to the power and the purpose that he yearns to bring in and through us. A few weeks ago, we talked about having grieving hearts because living here is hard and there is full of grief. And so we have to not run from that grief, but process it healthfully. And then last week, Gemma showed us what it meant to have gracious hearts, hearts that operate out of humility, honor, and healing. And while this is by no means an exhaustive list, we're going to end today on the necessity of having a gleaned heart. Now, glean heart's not a word that we use much these days, uh, and particularly in the sense that I mean it. So we're going to just dive straight into the text uh, to understand uh, what I mean by having a gleaned heart. The concept actually comes from today's teaching text, which is Leviticus chapter 19, a deep cut, relax, I know, this is uh, something new, you don't get too many Levitical sermons, uh, but we're here. I promise it'll be worth it. So our verse is simple. Two verses, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
Now, on the surface, we have a simple command from God to take it easy on the yard work or to intentionally leave a portion of the harvest for the needy. But I think when we examine both the cultural and the biblical context in which we receive this passage, it's going to make it a lot more richer. And I think we'll perceive an invitation I think God directly has for us as a people here today. So let's dive into this context. First, let's take the cultural context. Now, to understand what's happening culturally, it's first important to note that ancient Israel is what's called a agro-pastoralist society. That's a first date way of saying they were a people that lived on growing crops and raising animals, okay? Now, the second thing to note is that unlike our current like, individualistic society where we value the, the, the individual or the person above all else, ancient Israel didn't view people as individuals, but actually they were part of a kinship or a household group. I've been uh, reading the research of a few anthropologists and some uh, biblical uh, theologians uh, and archaeologists, because, you know, that's fun. I actually really love it. Um, but particularly, uh, I have to shout them out the words to Dr. Carol Myers and Cynthia Schaefer Elliott. And these two women have done incredible work on unpacking what exactly the people of ancient Israel were like and why they did the things that they do. And one of the most particularly fascinating concepts has been this idea of them being a society that viewed not the person but the group, right? The dominant societal structure for early Israel is the household. Now, the household is different from what we would say, which is family. When we talk about family, oftentimes we're talking about blood relations. Uh, your mom, your dad, maybe some, uh, those who are, you know, through blood, by marriage, right? Uh, where I'm from, the country, we say your mom and them. Uh, so that, it's just like everybody who you're kind of related to. But a household is distinct in that it covers not just those who are related by blood or marriage, but also those who are guests, who are slaves, who are hired helps, is really defined by a shared residence and a shared commitment to domestic work, right? So it's everybody that's in this group making life happen. And again, by life we mean raising, planting crops and raising animals because this is how we live and this is how we survive. And so for ancient Israel, you were not just you, you were Joseph, son of Jesse, the tribe of Benjamin, right? You belong to a people group. Now, why is this important? Well, within these people groups, we basically have these three functions of how people related to one another. And those three functions were protection, procreation, and production. Now, the first two are very gendered, right? So men oversaw the protection of the household and livestock. This is a very important role. So much so, we see the linear just in 1 Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says in chapter 5, verse 8, that a man who doesn't provide or look after his household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is rooted in this practice and belief that a man had a primary responsibility to look over those entrusted to his care, not just his family, again, but all those who worked under him all the, and all the crops and the, plant, the animals that were herded. Secondly, we had procreation. Clearly, obviously, this was the domain of the woman, and the highest honor of a woman during this time was childbearing. Now, this is not because their body could do a thing, but it was because survival was dependent upon the active participation 
of the entire household. Many hands make light work. So the more kids that one could produce, the more that could be cared for, the more crops that could be managed, the more animals that could be herded. And so therefore, the more wealth you were able to maintain. Now, lastly, the production, though, was not a gendered uh, domain. This was when people, we talk about the value of people one to another in ancient Israel. What we're talking about, whether man or woman, is what they're able to produce, what they're able to do, whether that's uh, helping to maintain the house and keep it clean, uh, whether that's to uh, maintain the basic structure, whether that's to go get more animals or sheep. But basically what you're having here is that everyone played a part in all of the roles. So even when it came to things like harvesting or when it came to things like planting the seed, this was work that was done by both men and women. Now, what does all that have to do with anything we're talking about today? The reason it's important to understanding this passage is because it helps us identify the heart of God. See, this law's chief directive was God's provision for those who were at risk and in need of family, those who were alone. This law is recorded three times in scripture, here in Leviticus 19, once again in Leviticus 23, where it's basically written exactly the same, care for the poor, leave the, leave the gleanings of the field for the poor and the widow, and then once again in Deuteronomy 24. And let's read how that is listed there. So Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 19, it says, when you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the, the bows twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigner, the orphans, and the widows. So, foreigners, orphans, widows, poor, what do all these people have in common? They are on the outside of community, not because of their gender or not because of their status. They're on the outside of the community because they're alone. They don't have a household. They are actually individuals. And so God is instituting a law to his people to care for those who are alone. And that's his heart, is to make sure that those who are distinct are able to be brought into the family and protected. And so he says to Israel, don't go to the edges of your crop. Intentionally leave behind your resources. Now, that's the cultural context. Let's talk a little bit about the biblical context because while the cultural context gives us the plan of God, the biblical context will give us the purpose, the why of God. So this law is given to us in a set of 613 laws called the Levitical Law, the Mosaic Law. And these laws were ceremonial, moral, and judicial commandments given to the people of Israel. And they were given at a very pivotal time. So the first laws, we all know the Ten Commandments, were given at Mount Sinai just after the Israelites had come out of slavery in Egypt. All right? But if you go before slavery in Egypt, what you find is that the people of Israel were actually the people of a family, the family of Abraham and Isaac. 
right? And so now you have these, you had 12 brothers, of which one, Joseph, had been placed into captivity, had extended to the ranks of, of second in command of all of Egypt. And under Pharaoh, he has given permission to bring his 11 brothers to settle them in the land of Egypt so that they could grow and prosper through then a famine. But fast forward. Exodus 1 tells us that Joseph has died, his brothers have died, and Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh has come in who doesn't know any of them, who doesn't know the history of these people. All he knows is that there is a whole horde of foreign people under their nose, and he is afraid that one day these people might decide that they want to run things, and that would be bad. And so he says, we must enslave them. And so the Israelites, the family of Abraham, becomes the slave of Egypt. And for 400-something years, they work in captivity until God brings about Moses and he leads them out. He crosses them over the river, the Red Sea, and now they're at the base of Sinai. And God now starts to give them a command. And there is the shift. Before, they were a mighty family. Now they are a fledgling nation. They're more than just a family. They're, this, they're, they're this, this actual nation among other nations. They're a full-blown people. And so God is giving them a framework now, not just as a family but as a nation, on how they will relate both to him and to each other. And this law that he starts to give them, these 613 rules, they serve two primary purposes. First, it was to set them apart from any other nation in the world. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says this. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my commandments, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The second and the higher purpose is God is making plain to the people their insufficiency to be holy before him. And he's showing them their need for a savior. Literally, when you look at the theme of Leviticus, where we find this verse, the theme of Leviticus is this. We find it actually in 19, in verse 2, where it says, God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, God is telling them they need to be holy, but he also knows that they can't. Why would you do that, God? Why give them rules that you know they have no chance of keeping? Well, he is doing this because God is setting the stage for the coming restorer of all things, Jesus. And so Jesus comes later to fulfill the law. We find this in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So, culturally, we see the heart of God, that he wants to provide for the lonely and the needy. Biblically, we see the plan of God. God is giving us rules that point to our need for a Savior, one that he provides in and through himself in the person of Jesus. God is trying to set apart a group of people and make clear to them that they are a coalition of messed up people in need of a Savior. And they have these rules for these people who value being a part of a community of co-laborers above all else, that they must make sure to leave a portion of their most precious resources for those they are most likely to overlook. And if they do this, they will show what God is like and live fruitful lives. Here's the point. I think likewise, if we are going to live fruitful lives in New York City, I believe that it is necessary 
that we too intentionally leave the edges of our most precious, precious resources, our time, our money, our attention, for those who find themselves among us alone and in need of a family or the household of God. And when we commit to this, we will find ourselves incredibly not cut out for the task in our own strength. But through the Spirit, we will be able to become a blessed people that blesses people. Let me put it this way. Glean hearts are necessary because this city reveals our need for a household and the one God wants to provide for the lonely and needy around us. I'm going to say it one more time. Glean hearts are necessary because this city reveals our need for a household and the one God wants to provide for the lonely and the needy around us. Uh, I was my freshman year of college. I, vol- I not volunteered. I took a job at this camp counselor, this little camp in South Carolina where I'm from. And two weeks out of this summer, uh, they would have these special needs weeks where uh, campers with all sorts of uh, mental, emotional, and physical disabilities would come and have a, a week away, and we served as counselors. And my first time doing this, and I get entrusted as a 19-year-old uh, with seven um, uh, mentally uh, disabled people, and I'm taking care of them, and I'm getting them to and fro their activities, and it's not very easy. And there's just all these difficulties. Um, I am sitting here having to like navigate seizures. I'm navigating like fights and disruption. I'm not trained to like really how to handle emotional outbursts. And I quickly develop a contempt. I am like over this so hard. And I really start to resent these people that I've been called to lead. And I remember sitting there one day and I was just like, I cannot wait for this week to be over. And I found myself being hurt and and just not very nice. And then about the third night, one day, I'd, I'd put them all to bed, and I go, uh, uh, I go to like rest and get some sleep, and I all of a sudden fall ill. I mean, like sick, sick. I've never been this sick in my life. I am incredibly weak. I have this fever. I can not even really move. And I am supposed to sleep outside of the cabin where these campers are are staying. And we had these uh, counselor trailers not too far off where we could go shower and such. And I remember just laboriously making it back to this trailer. And some of the other counselors, my friends are there, and they see me. And I am like worse for wear. And I just really like need a shower because I don't smell good. And... One of my roommates in the trailer, he looks at me and he says, man, I, I, I can help you. I, I'll help you shower. Um, we were friends, but we were not, like, naked friends. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> was, this was not, not a thing. Uh, uh, but honestly, this tells you how sick I was. I was like, I mean, are you sure, man? I don't know about this. And he was like, dude, I've been doing this all week with, like, people, you know, so, like, what's one more? Uh, and so, you know, he literally, like, kind of helps me, like, get into the shower. And he, like, helps me get back uh, to this porch where I'm supposed to watch. And 
uh, I remember laying in the sleeping bag and I'm shivering. And the Spirit of God just comes in and he just kind of pulls me out of that scene and he goes, now you know what it feels like to need help. Now you know what it feels like to need help. And how dare you treat my beloved with contempt. But now you also know what it feels like to receive grace. And I just remember like weeping. I'm just, I'm so sorry, God, you're right. (laughs) It was not the first time, definitely not the last that I would know the depths of my own brokenness. But what was really cool was literally, I fell asleep in those tears, and a few hours I woke perfectly healthy. I walked in and I got my counselors, and this time I treated them with the love and dignity that they deserved as people of God. Why do I tell this story? I believe that the invitation for us as a people here at Oast Church Brooklyn is to administer the grace of God to this city. But we cannot fool ourselves to believe that this is an easy task. It's really easy to get in rooms like these with people like us and to talk about the goodness of God and how we want to be administers of the gospel to our city and just like get all hyped up and then we run out there and we realize that it's not that easy and people are going to denigrate you for it and your bosses aren't going to understand why you don't want to work and take a Sabbath and your girlfriend's not going to understand when you want to uh, uh, carry, uh, give your body um, to God and holiness and people aren't going to understand when you don't want to cheat and it's going to be hard And it's going to make you just want to give up. And it can also lead you to contempt. But if we rely on the Spirit of God and one another, I think we have a shot at it. I really think that we could be a people that God uses to bring about some true healing to this city. that we could really know what it means. You hear this all the time in churches where they say, man, you want to be the kind of church that when people leave, uh, the community throws a fit. I've heard that so much. I, I haven't really seen it yet, but I would love to. I think it could happen with us. I'm up for it. John 21, uh, after uh, Jesus restores Peter on the beach, Uh, Jesus tells Peter that he is going to, essentially he alludes to the fact that Peter is going to be persecuted later in his life. Uh, And at the end of 21, uh, the scriptures say, John writes that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would have, that Peter, actually says this, let me just read it. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. The invitation of Jesus is to glorify God. It's not to be happy. It's not to be um, free of pain. It's not to live uh, comforted lives. The invitation is to glorify God. Sometimes glorifying God 
looks like enduring persecution. It looks like the cross. Oftentimes, it looks like the cross. So that's the choice that we have to make. But if we do so, there is a blessedness on the other side of obedience. So when we talk about the gleaning of the fields and what it means to have clean hearts, when we talk about intentionally being a people who don't max ourselves out, right? Who don't say, hey, it's God, I understand that, like, I understand you want me to do this glean thing, but here's the thing, it's better for my career if I work 60 hours a week. And since I work 60 hours a week, like, with the time I have left, I mean, I really should just spend it with the friends that I like, and why would I want to, like, try to, I, I, yeah, it would be great to make time for people who are new to this city or make time for these people who uh, may need help in this city, but come on, I'm kind of maxed out over here. Give me a break. That's the temptation. But the invitation is to be a people that intentionally leave the edges of our time, our money, and our attention for those who are in the city and need a family and need a household. If you're a transplant, then you know how hard it is to survive here on your own. And if you're from here, if you're a homesteader, you also know how hard it is to be here. But you also have this invitation to make this place a true home for others. There's a Bible story. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've literally, I, I don't know if it's old age or fatherhood or something, but I will cry the drop of a dime right now. I just, man, episode of This Is Us, I had to like cut it off. This is too much. Um, <laughs> But uh, I was literally reading uh, Ruth the other day. Ruth is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's four chapters. I highly recommend you spend some time with it this week. The end of Ruth is what got me. And that's very weird, as you'll see, because the end of Ruth, uh, verses uh, 21 through 22, basically says this. It says that Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Oved. Oved fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And I remember just reading that and just went, and you're like, okay, come on now. Well, to understand why that caught me so, we've got to go back actually to the beginning, right? So how the story of Ruth opens is in chapter one, we're introduced to a man named Elimelech and his wife, uh, Naomi. And Naomi and Elimelech, they move to Moab and they have two sons. And their two sons get married to two women, one named Ruth and one named Orpah. Now, Elimelech, the father, remember, again, the protection of his household, he dies. So now it's left to his two sons to care for their mother and their wives. But the scripture tells us that those two sons also die. And so now we have these three women, Naomi, uh, Orpah, and Ruth, and they're alone. And as we talked about, in this society, they're on the outcast, not necessarily because they're women, but because they have, they aren't able to produce on their own. And so they're stuck. And so Naomi is going to head back to Israel to go to her family. And so she tells these, these two women, because she's like, you've got a whole life ahead of them. She says, hey, don't follow me. Just go back to your homes. Go back to your gods. Go back to the lives that you're living. One of the daughters, Orpah, obeys. She kisses her. She says goodbye. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, does not. Chapter 1, uh, this is like, uh, verse 16, uh, 
Ruth tells her, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you are buried, I'll be buried. She's what we call ten toes down where I'm from. Ride or die, she's here. And so, these two outcasts, these two women, make their way back to where Naomi is from. And what happens is uh, they need food. And how do they find provision of food? Well, they find provision of food at the edges of a field that have been gleaned by a man named Boaz. And so Boaz, a good Israelite man, has obeyed the Levitical law, and he has left the edges of his field for people like Naomi and Ruth to find sustenance to live in this world. So Ruth goes out because Naomi is old and frail, and Ruth is harvesting the food. And as she's harvesting, she meets Boaz, and she finds him to be an incredible man, and Boaz takes this liking to Ruth. And Ruth goes back, and she tells Naomi about Boaz. And this excites Naomi, because what she finds is that Boaz is in the family of Naomi. Why is this important? So, there is a thing, there is this, this, this mechanism of restoration in, in the Israelite society called the kinsman redeemer. And what that means is, when a person were to die, like Elimelech and his two sons did, a, a distant relative could come and reclaim that property and those people in the household, thereby bringing them back into society and making a way for them to be, once again, a household that multiplies and is able to produce more crops, more food, care for more animals. Again, this is a way back into life. And it turns out that Boaz, being family to Naomi, is able to be a kinsman redeemer. And so, Naomi tells Ruth, you have to ask him if he will do this for us. And so Ruth does. She goes, I won't give you the details. You can go read it. But uh, Ruth basically goes to Boaz and she asks him to be the kinsman redeemer. Boaz agrees. There's a challenge by someone else. But this other man, uh, this other relative who's a lot closer in the lineage than Boaz has the opportunity, but he doesn't want the headache. It's too much. And so he's like, nah, I'm good. You can have it. I don't want to marry her. And so Boaz decides to marry Ruth and thereby restores Naomi and Ruth once again to standing in society and brings them about a household. And the very end of the story of Ruth tells us that Boaz and Ruth have a son named Oved. And Oved has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. But you know this David, but you know him by his title, King David. Matthew 1 tells this genealogy, and it says in the end that King David, there are these four generations from Abraham to David. And then from David to exile was another four generations. Uh, and then from, there were four generations to the Messiah. A man obedient to the gleaning of the fields comes into the lineage of the Messiah of the world. Now, the Messiah's already come, so I don't think we're going to bring about another Messiah. But I do think that if we perceive the invitation of God to glean our hearts, our time, our resources, and our money, I think that we will find ourselves in the plan of God, and who knows what healing he wants to bring through this city in and through us as a people. 
He can literally change the world. He may just change Angel Street. I'm okay with that. We'll start there and see what happens. Ben's going to come back up. This is the invitation. We talked about Peter and how Peter received the same invitation. Knowing that it would be hard and that it would end in death, Jesus asks him to follow me. And we know that Peter says yes. Because Peter has committed to himself that he would glorify God. And later on in Peter's life, as he's writing to this church of Gentile believers in Asia Minor, he writes this letter and he says in 1 Peter 2 and 9, he says to them, in the face of persecution, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Same is true of us. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, the household of God, right here in these very walls. Called to have gleaned hearts for the lonely and the needy among us. Father, we pray that we would have the courage. face of a countercultural move to say yes to your invitation. Lord, we say like Isaiah, here are we, use us, send us. If you want to do something in Brooklyn, how about us? How about me? Lord, would you give us the fidelity of Ruth? Who saw in the God of Naomi a true way to live. to worship again. These prayer rugs, if you're in the room, are here to use. There will be people here to meet you in prayer. If you already know the weight of the city, you could use someone to speak a word over you. God's doing something pretty good.